But I wanted to begin in this room because it's the earliest um, work in the exhibition. And Morris Lewis, now an American Master Revisited, was organized by the High Museum of Art. I'm the curator of that exhibition. It traveled to the San, Fran um, San Diego Museum of Contemporary Art before finishing its tour here at the Hirshhorn. And it's the first time there's been a retrospective of Morris Lewis's work in the United States in 20 years. And the important point to make is that Morris Lewis, even though he passed away in 1962, now, 45 years later, is extraordinarily relevant to younger and contemporary artists now, as well as many generations of artists over the past 40 years. So we wanted to take a fresh look at Morris Lewis. And in this exhibition, you'll see paintings that have never before been displayed in the United States, and even a few gems that have never been shown before at all. And I want to turn your attention over to this wall because this painting was completed in 1953 and it's different than any other painting you're going to see throughout the exhibition because one of the extraordinary um, points in Morris Lewis's career is in the mid-50s when he radically changed his style. He was 41, 42 years old. He'd been working as an artist for over 20 years. He attended traditional art school. He was an art teacher. He was a painter. His wife, um, in large part, supported his practice. He had turned the dining room in their home into a studio. And the other point I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we walk through this gallery, every painting that you're going to see here was painted in a room 12 by 14 feet. Another point to remember is that no one ever saw Morris Lewis painting. There are no pictures of him painting that exist. He didn't talk to people about how he created these canvases. And there's an aura of mystery that surrounds them because of that. The evidence of how they were made is in the surface of the canvas. His great contribution to the history of art is that he created this luminous body of work by taking acrylic paint and thinning it with turpentine and polymer acrylic and pouring it so that it soaked into the raw canvas. Now, the other point I want to make is that all of the canvases except these two, the one behind you and the one in front of me, are raw, untreated canvas. It's pure cotton duck. There's nothing protecting the surface of the painting, so they're extraordinarily fragile, and we don't want anyone to touch them. This is one of the last paintings which he prepared with a ground using gesso. But what you see is this gesture. That you can see how the paint was actually flung on the surface of the canvas, and he used the, the brushes to sort of scrub the color into this. And this is a very um, typical uh, application at this time, you know, Jackson Pollock, Willem de Kooning, who the so-called action painters called that because they were physically moving around and painting their canvases. Jackson Pollock was uh, a pioneer for the fact that he laid his raw canvas on the surface of his studio and moved around the perimeter of it, sort of doing this dance with the paint. Morris Lewis was exposed to Pollock's work, but it was a trip that he made in 1953 to Helen Frankenthaler's studio. She had been to Pollock's studio earlier and adopted his process, but substituted acrylic paint, which she thinned to the consistency of watercolor, for that oil paint. And that's how you get this more translucent quality and also this very liquid, um, emotive quality. The painting looks as if it were actually being painted before your eyes. So I want you to keep in mind that that is a moment, and then the next year behind you, you see the way he's painting. There's a radical shift. And this is typical of Morris Lewis. And the rest of the exhibition that you will see, all of the paintings in this exhibition were created within a period of eight years. There are 600 paintings, a little over 600 paintings that exist, but there are many, many, many more hundreds that we know were destroyed. 
Morris Lewis really edited his legacy. He, in a sense, curated his own history. There are numerous paintings, as I said, he was a painter for some 20 years before he created the works you see. Almost nothing exists, he destroyed everything. And up until the end of his life, he removed by destroying, he literally hauled them off to the dump where they were burned, canvases that he was not pleased with and entire bodies of work. So in 1954, from 1953 where you have this work, to 1954 he's hit on his technique, his style, the, the, the indelible mark that we remember and think about when we think of Morris Lewis. Layers and layers of luminous thinned paint poured in these veils, as we often refer to them, of color. And what they are, if you look at the top of the painting and the bottom of the painting, you begin to see the numerous accretions and layers of thin pigment. And literally, you see the pigment itself, that's what this chalky looking blue substance is. It's the pigment that's risen to the top of that resin laying on the surface of the canvas. So once again, that's why they're so incredibly fragile. So both of these paintings are from 1954. And as we move in through the next two galleries, we're gonna stop in the third. I just want you to look around at the paintings and then we'll stop and talk about one more in focus. All right, the, the eight paintings that we just walked by or are now standing in the presence of were painted either in 1958 or 1959. The paintings, the last two paintings I spoke about were painted in 1954. What happened in between? This is one of those uh, periods that Morris Lewis literally obliterates from his history. He had hit on that mature style, what we would consider his, his signature technique in 1954, thinning the pigment, pouring the paint, and then, almost as quickly, he discarded it and reverted to using oil paint and painting in a more typical abstract expressionist idiom. There are a few canvases that exist from that time where you see very thick, layered, blottish. Um, we really think of them as fairly unsuccessful paintings. He only saved a few of them because he obviously agreed. He destroyed um, some 150 paintings in that period. And realizing that he was going down a dead end, returned in 1950, late 57, early 58, to this technique of once again thinning the pigment, the acrylic pigment, referred to as magna paint. You'll see on the labels it says magna. That's a type of acrylic paint. It's like a brand name. And really then full force exploring the possibilities of the raw canvas and the color in this pigment, this acrylic pigment. And I like to stop in this room because you see, as you did in the previous gallery, the incredible variety and intensity of flavors and um, enormous, um, I think, kind of, um, it's almost symphonic, if you think of them as a body of work, how each one picks up on a note from the next and then changes it completely. So you have all of these refer we refer to as veils, and some of them seem very solid. Some of them seem split into, um, almost, uh, what are the pairs called in triptychs, you know, diptychs and triptychs. And you can even see that, not so clearly in these two, but in this one, for instance, you see that it's really a tripartite painting. And you see, once again, remember that he was painting these in a room 12 by 14 feet. There's very little room to manipulate, right? So you can see these divisions. He did not 
stretch the paintings and hang them on the wall. He was using different types of support systems. So he had what we call stretchers, but they're not typical stretchers in that these canvases weren't tacked to a square frame. He used support systems that he manipulated this fabric. And you really have to think of it as fabric like a t-shirt that you're wearing. Although canvas is much more um, stiff, it still is a moving body. It's an organic substance. And the paint itself is an organic substance. And these two things are in motion at all time. And this man working by himself is working in this very small space and working against time and with time to accrete these layer upon layer of color and evoke these different effects. In this room in particular, you see the rich, rich colors that he begins almost every canvas with laying down those emerald greens, those um, lapis lazuli blues, and these light pinks and peach tonalities. And if you look across the surface, for instance, of the picture over here, which is very dark, but at the very top you'll see those brilliant dark tones and the light pastels. And all of these paintings, please look at the one behind you, which is finished off with a sort of bronze gold color. It also has the evidence of that. So each of these paintings began with the same process, the same palette of colors, and then he proceeded to, in different ways, obliterate or change the original um, structure by the subsequent layers of wash. And because of that, we've come up with a number of terms to refer to them. This one we call a black veil because the last layer of color is black. And if you come a little closer, you can see how effective that is because he's not blocking out the richness of what's beneath but causing something different to happen. And the lighting in here happens to be terrific. But if this painting were hanging, let's say, in someone's home or in a different, in a hallway, it would literally look like a black painting. When the lights are off, it looks like a black surface. But now you see this iridescence, and I keep thinking of um, those beetles that we see in natural history museums. I forget what variety they are, but they have this shell on them and it's sort of a purpley uh, luminescent. And when you look closely at the surface of this, all of these paintings, there is a luminous quality of each layer that's hidden beneath the surface layer attempting to get through. And that's another thing that always impresses me about Morris Lewis's paintings, and I think it has something to do with the fact that they're painted on raw canvas, is they are still alive in a way that many paintings that have been treated with gesso and made stiff aren't. I mean, these literally still breathe. They still move to a certain extent. They're on wood stretchers. If it gets too humid somewhere, they sink in a little bit. They come back out. So they have a very natural life, and indeed, if you look at them, they really evoke natural forms. And Morris Lewis talked about beauty in the very few times that he did talk about his painting. He wasn't afraid of that word. And there, as you know, there's a lot of ideology surrounding abstract painting in the 1940s and the 1950s. And he didn't speak about that. He wasn't a great orator. He was a very private, solitary person. He was a record keeper in that he kept track of business transactions, how much paint he bought, how much canvas he bought, but he didn't write about what he was painting. He didn't write about what he thought about what he was making. He was too busy making work. Because remember, in eight years, from 1954 to 1962 when he died, there are 600 paintings that exist, and probably at least as many that were destroyed. And it's estimated that he painted a painting on the scale of these at least once every three days. So let's move into a gallery two beyond this space. We've walked through a gallery, obviously a radical change. Same year, 1958 to 1959. All of these paintings were painted in 1958, 1959 to early 1960 in some instances. 
you look around you, you see four radically different canvases through this space, yet one more. And because of that, they're referred to as themes and variations. In this period, once again, there are very few canvases that exist, but his records show that many over 150, again, were created. He chose, for instance, if you look at this sort of riotous canvas on the other wall, which is actually in the collection of the High Museum, it's a painting that I acquired for our collection, and it really is part of the thinking of why this exhibition came to happen. When I saw this painting in a storeroom in New York City, I uh, was a classically trained art historian and thought that I knew a lot about Morris Lewis, and I saw this painting leaning against a wall with four Morris Lewises and asked who it was by. I had no idea it was a Morris Lewis. Because these themes and variations, as they're referred to, there are very few of them that exist. There are very few institutions. The Hirshhorn's extraordinarily lucky to have Point of Tranquility, which you see on that wall. But many of these, once again, had never been seen publicly or shown before. And it really exposed a side of Morris Lewis that many people didn't think about. This is a very vibrant, it's a very sensual painting. Much of his painting sort of seems to have a formality and a rigidity to it. This one rejects all of that. You also see this kind of lush interplay of the color, where perhaps in a work like this, you see colors are very much segregated and striated. But in the other two themes and variations, florals, as we refer to them over here, because they really do evoke the bloom of a flower, let's say. Pardon me, I have to go over there and draw attention to the differences. You see how he was really experimenting, once again, in this time period, and with the Hirshhorn painting, you see how he's pouring from all sides of the canvas, all four edges, working toward the center, and then once again going into the center and laying on some final washes of color. In the painting on this side, which is from the Cleveland Museum of Art, you see where he's working simultaneously from every edge into the center, once again from the center out to the edges. You can see these individual bands of color, and then once again a final wash where all of the color collects and pools across the bottom. Also keeping in mind, he was working in a room 12 by 14 and painting at a radical pace. Let's move into the next gallery. And so, everything that we've seen up to this point, what's one of the dominant traits? The intense layers of color, the almost complete obliteration of the canvas hidden by the layers of color. And then suddenly, in 1960, Morris Lewis moves into yet another direction. And the rest of the paintings throughout the exhibition explore that. These paintings in this gallery and the next are referred to as unfurled paintings because it's one of the few instances where we have Morris Lewis referring in writing to a typology. And he didn't call them the unfurled paintings. He referred in the letter to Kermit Greenberg that he had painted paintings which he recalled the big unfurling ones. Now, once again, we don't know if that's because he was literally unfurling yards and yards of canvas off of this huge rolls of canvas he would buy or because of the effect of these banner-like shapes unfurling toward the center and out toward the edges of the canvases. Now, in terms of what he's exploring in his interests, by this time, the, the acrylic magna paints that he's been using throughout um, the 50s and 60s, he worked very closely with um, the, the, the manufacturer, Beaucourt, who made these paints, and, and many of the artists at that time, and frankly, this is an interesting fact a lot of people don't know, still many artists work very closely with manufacturers in having paints developed specifically for them. Morris Lewis was constantly pushing Beaucourt to make the paints more flexible, more liquid, and more intense in color. 
And by this point, he had achieved that. So you see the real intense primary colors and the really intense secondary colors. There are only a few paintings of this type. This is out of the, the series of these that he painted that still exist. Once again, there are only a few. It's the only one where the primary colors, red, blue, and green, are on one side. The secondary colors, purple, orange, and green, are on the next. In all of the other paintings, if this is black and that's black, this is blue, then that would be blue. So it does show that Morris Lewis is always thinking about color, color theory, but unlike artists such as Mondrian or Hans Hoffmann, he didn't write treatises, he didn't teach didactically about his own theories of color. Rather, I think that his practice his whole entire body of work is the exploration of his ideas about the properties of color and how color behaves and how it evokes different emotions in the viewer. So once again, remember that this painting, which is almost 20 feet in length, was created in that small space. How did he do it? Once again, we don't know for sure. There's no scientific there's no empirical evidence of how it was made, but the one clue, and this is one of the only canvases in existence where you see after 1952, Morris Lewis drawing on the canvas. And you can't come too close, but you can see graphite marks down the center of the canvas. So we know that to make it, he had to have folded the canvas in half and worked two halves in two separate sessions. And those pencil marks make clear where he decided to begin and end the pour along each side. And so this is the logical progression of that technique, the, this unfurling series. And I want you to keep in mind the scale of these paintings and then think about the fact that um, he painted uh, over 180 of these, 160 to 180. And once again, who knows how many more that were destroyed. Each one a variation on a singular theme, but within that theme, incredible variation and variety. And now, thinking once again back to the veils and thinking about the paintings we saw in the previous galleries in which the center of the painting plays a key role, the, the complete um, operation of involving every edge of the canvas. Now you have an incredible focus on the absence of the center or a void in a sense and how do you activate a great space with nothing in it except this clean, pure surface of the canvas and the edges are what becomes important. The edges define the structure in some way. And I just want to make you know, a couple technical observations because I think some people see it as integral to the paintings. Some paintings have frames on them and some paintings don't have frames on them. It's important to know that during his lifetime, most of these paintings were not stretched and they were never displayed. He painted them, he let them dry, and he rolled them up and put them in storage, one on top of the other. Uh, at the time of his death, almost 600 paintings were pulled out of his basement and a storage room on the second floor of his house. And that's where they had been, mostly since they were created. There were a few instances, I mean, he did have a few shows of his work in his lifetime, but for the most part, none of these paintings were seen. Two of these paintings, these unfurled paintings, were shown during Morris Lewis's lifetime, but he didn't see that show. Which means, in effect, that Morris Lewis never saw these paintings at all because he couldn't see the whole thing hanging on a wall in his house. I've been in that house. There's not a wall big enough that would hold it. There was one space on the floor where he could lay it out, but he never properly saw the paintings that he created. So we know that he was on an incredible voyage of discovery and investigation. And I think about this sort of leap of faith that many artists take when they're working. 
he had to believe completely in his mission because he wasn't making a lot of money. It wasn't until around 1960 that he had even sold any paintings and had any income for the last six years. Once again, he was being supported mostly by Mrs. Brenner and he was working steadfastly and once again rejecting his own style. He would reach what many people thought was an interesting new point and just as quickly abandon it. So once again, he works through this idea of these unfurls and 14 months later begins what become his final paintings. Until 1961, and Morse Lewis died in 1962 at the age of 49. Morse Lewis died of lung cancer, and uh, he knew that he had lung cancer only toward the very end. He knew that he was sick. So, once again, we can only postulate about what he was thinking, but we do know that what's one of the most evident things you see when you walk into this gallery besides that now they've sort of coalesced into these stripe paintings as we often refer to them but the scale. It's become much more contained. It's become much more what I call domestic. All of those paintings that were in the other galleries that are so large, everyone else thought they were so large too. That's why they didn't sell. People couldn't put them in their home. And for that instance, many museums weren't acquiring these works yet. Morris Lewis came to be a very well-known, even famous, influential artist in the 1960s and 1970s. But when he died in 1962, he was we could best say, you know, a not very well-known artist. And he, um, like many people, like many working artists today, he was working um, with the hope of achieving some sort of, um, I guess you could call it notoriety, but that wasn't what was motivating his work. And I think that we have to keep that in mind when you think about, you realize what an artist has accomplished through looking back at history, but remember what they were doing at that time and then the later influence they had on that history. And that's why we do shows like this every 20 years to reevaluate what that influence is and what it continues to be. But back to the paintings. So why did he make them smaller? Was it because he thought that they would sell more easily? Or was it because you know, physically he was incapable of manipulating those huge swaths of canvas? We're not completely sure. But it is clear if you think about how he's working with color through the years and what we see, he's constantly refining and removing layers and working toward the essential elements of each color. And what could be you know, the more finite exploration of that, but these singular bands of color where they do certainly overlap, but each color articulated in pure, brilliant form, one next to the other, with the variation being how they sort of march themselves across the canvas. So once again, you see that he created a, a huge number, almost 200, over 200 of these paintings, these so-called stripe paintings. But within that body, toward the very end, he created very few of these, which are called horizontals, and then at the very end, these diagonals. And I'll just finish on this painting because it's from 1962, the year that he died. It's one of the last paintings which we have reference to him uh, discussing in any way. And he had marked the canvas for the stretching and talked about wanting to mount it on a diagonal. So there are many choices that he made. It wasn't determined after his death. You see the bands of color not quite meeting the edge of the canvas at this point and then completely meeting it here. We do know that um, this is the most 
contained and controlled use of the paint that you'll ever see. Once again, he was still pouring the pigment. He may have been using some sort of device, but there were no brushes. It was not taped off. This isn't um, you know, a pattern painting in that way, but it certainly is a painting that looks like many subsequent paintings by many artists who use those techniques of taping off, creating very minimalist, structured, shaped canvases in the later 60s and into the 1970s. So for that reason alone, this painting in 1962 really becomes a template for many artists afterwards, one of the reasons that Morris Lewis was a pioneer. Many of the paintings that you see walking through the exhibition, you see echoed in the work of other artists throughout the 60s, throughout the 70s, and up to today. And I will just give a plug for a program we're doing here on October 16th, where at the same time, down in the auditorium, where I'll be in discussion with two contemporary artists, Monique Benjandran and Chris Vassell, who are making brilliant, beautiful paintings today, very much informed by the legacy of abstraction that Morris Lewis was investigating. All right, thank you all very much for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you.